Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Thank you so much, Tracy, for reading our lesson for us this day on the second Sunday as we prepare to come to the Lord's altar or as we prepare in our own homes to reaffirm our vows. Uh, We're grateful for God's word for God's people this day. Thank you to Mason, uh, Gigi, Tim, and all of our Dale and and all of our uh, praise band for leading us and Adam for your prayer this morning. We're deeply, deeply grateful. If you were with us last weekend, you know that we began, Toy King began for us very well this series that we're calling Reorientation. I think in an age wherein we seem to have lost our center sometimes, where we even after this week are feeling rather disoriented, feeling bewildered and unsettled and sometimes unhinged, I cannot personally imagine a better way to begin this new year, 2021, than by centering on the preaching of Jesus. Isn't it true that the gospel, that the scripture, has a way of recalibrating our hearts and minds, especially when we find ourselves out of alignment? And God knows after the year we've experienced, and especially these last days, we need alignment, realignment spiritually. And so after having considered in this walk with Jesus, the prayer life of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the prophecy of Jesus, this morning we turn to the parables of Jesus. Jesus consistently in his teaching used parables in order to communicate divine truth. The Greek word Parabole means something cast beside something else in order to explain or clarify. And I don't have to tell you that Jesus was a master at using common, everyday, ordinary examples in order to teach extraordinary truth. Jesus would often say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'd tell a story that would engage, that would probe and prod, that would challenge and convict and reorient the hearer. 
Parables are figurative language. They're metaphorical language, poetry, if you will, that opens our imagination to truth that cannot be perceived through prose. I think it was Plato who said, poetry is nearer to vital truth than history. Aristotle said, history expresses the particular, but poetry expresses the universal. Carl Sandburg said it like this, poetry is a search for syllables to shoot at the barriers of the unknown and the unknowable. I think that parables are the poetry of Jesus, through which the Christ reveals to us the unknown and the unknowable. I don't know about you, but often when I study the parables and when I study the Holy Scriptures, I realize that I don't interpret them nearly as much as they interpret me. Matthew has 23 parables in his gospel, 11 of which are unique to Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, has 24 parables of which 18 are unique to Luke. Mark has only eight of which two are peculiar to Mark. But the parable that we've read this morning that Tracy read for us is only found exclusively in the Gospel of Matthew. And before we get into it, as always, I think it helps to know something about the context. As we've said often before, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And so let's look at the context for a moment. Matthew chapter 13 is called by teachers and scholars the parable discourse because there are no less than seven parables in this chapter alone. It is important, I think, to note the sequence, the unfolding of Matthew's account. For example, in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's gospel, you see Jesus' signature sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew, we see the deeds of Jesus, the miraculous, powerful works of Jesus. Chapter 10 recounts the mission of Jesus as shared with his disciples. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we see the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees and the religious elders. Indeed, in chapter 12, verse 14, the scripture says that they were now looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. In other words, they were looking for a way to weed Jesus out. And so with this as a backdrop, with this as the context, the rejection of Jesus by the religious elders, Jesus tells this story. Verse 24 begins. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field. But while everybody was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And so when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also popped up. The servants, the field workers came to the owner and said, sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? Where did the weeds come from? And the owner replied, an enemy did this. And here's where it gets interesting. The field hands say to the owner, 
do you want us to fix it? Specifically, they said, do you want us to do the plucking, the gathering? Now, personally, I think that's more of a statement than a question because what they're really saying is, you do want us to weed the patch, don't you? And of course, it makes sense. It's the right thing to do. Otherwise, the crop, the field is gonna be compromised. And so who among us doesn't understand that in terms of gardening, to protect the good seed, you've got to get rid of the bad seed. The servants just want to fix the field. In other words, what they're saying in layman's terms is this, let us do the weed eating for the good of the harvest. But here's where, here's where the story is a little surprising. The owner responds in a rather unconventional, unexpected manner by saying, in essence, not so fast. Hold your horses. Leave the weeds alone. For two reasons, I think he says that. First of all, as the grain begins to ripen, it's not always easy to decipher the wheat from the weeds. There is a wheat-like weed called darnel, or cheat, as it's called, that grows wild in the Near East. It looks almost identical to the wheat. In fact, there are many who cannot tell them apart at all. So in the servant's zeal to weed out the bad, they may actually do more harm than good. Secondly, as the crop matures, what happens to the roots of wheat and weeds is that they can become so entangled, so intertwined, that if you go about yanking the weeds, there's going to be some unintended consequences. In their attempt to purify the field, they may actually uproot the wheat and wind up sabotaging the harvest. The field workers can't see this but the owner knows it. And so he says, let them both grow together until the harvest and I'll do the separating. In other words, what he's saying is this, leave the plucking to me. H. Richard Niebuhr, 20th century theologian, used to call this the grace of doing nothing. And by saying that, he's not being lethargic, he's commending patience. When I think of patience, I think of one of my favorite psychologists. I was a psych major at Lambeth University before going to Emory for my master's. And my favorite psychiatrist, psychoanalyst was Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist who made an interesting statement. I printed it on the slide because it's rather complex, but I want you to see this. Said Jung, and I quote, the greatest and most important problems of life are all in a certain sense insoluble. They can never be solved, only outgrown. This outgrowing consists of a new way of thinking. Some higher or wider interest arises on our horizon, and through this widening of view, the insoluble problem loses its urgency, 
It isn't solved logically in its own terms, but it fades out when confronted with a new and stronger life purpose. In short, Dr. Jung is commending patience. Patience is a virtue, as they say. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not programmed that way. My curriculum doesn't include much patience. In fact, we're calibrated in this age to be decisive, to be resolute, to take action, to fix it, whatever it is. Carpe diem is our motto, seize the day. And there's a place for that, obviously. But there's also a time and a place for patience, forbearance, stillness, and wisdom knows the difference. You remember the context of this story. Let me remind you again of the context. Jesus is in hot water with the Pharisees who were often called the separate ones. Both the Pharisees and the Essenes sometimes, like us, could get so preoccupied with our own sense of purity and virtue and holiness that they would weed others out and sometimes separate themselves from the field so as not to be polluted or compromised or contaminated. And I need to pause it there for just a moment and say this. Holiness and sanctification is critical. Boundaries and discipline are absolutely necessary. If you don't believe that, go to Matthew 18 and you'll see the emerging discipline of the early church where when there's conflict in the body, the word says this, if a brother offends you, go to him privately, take him aside and share your concern. If she doesn't listen, take two or three witnesses to meet with, with you. If that doesn't work, bring it to the attention of the church. That's the early unfolding discipline of a church that is often in trouble in the field. It's critical discipline. But it's also critical to note that the objective of discipline is not first of all to expel or expunge, it's to retain, it's to reconcile. We need discipline, but we need discipline without discrimination. We need boundaries, but without prejudice, without double standard. And let me tell you, if you read the parable of the wheat and the weeds as a justification for weeding out the Pharisee, you have completely missed the point. There is a related text in Matthew 15 where the Pharisees were offended, outraged by Jesus and friends because they seem to be breaking from the tradition of the elders in regard to ritual purity. They were eating on the Sabbath. They were not washing their hands. And the disciples let Jesus know that the Pharisees are out to get you. And Jesus responded by saying, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be plucked up by the roots. Leave them be. 
let the Pharisees alone. In other words, leave the yanking to God. Oh, that's so hard to do. Especially for church folk, especially for clergy like me, especially when I've got a ready sickle in my anxious hands. Let them grow together. That's what Jesus says. Why? Because sometimes what looks like a weed is not a weed at all. Sometimes what looks like wheat isn't wheat at all. It's not always clear. And it's not up to you or me to fix it. Now, the truth of the matter is, every one of us ought to be ruthless when it comes to weeding ourselves. But we must be patient and cautious in weeding others because our understanding is so limited, because our perception is so finite. I have to tell you that I'm just grateful this morning that God hasn't liquidated me. The church in Corinth was struggling with this whole issue as well. And Paul was wise to write to them in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 these words, friends do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, for he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart and then each one will receive commendation from God. It's so easy, isn't it, to get lost in the weeds. We've been in the weeds this week in our nation. It's exhausting. It's wearisome. It's burdensome. One side seems always trying to weed out the other side. One group pretends it's, it's wheat while everybody else weeds. And we become blind to the mix of both that is in each of us. And we think I'm more righteous than her. I'm more just than him. I'm more holy than them. I'm more Christian. I'm more gracious. I'm more merciful. I'm more patriotic. I'm more human. I'm more American. I'm more whatever. I come in repentance today because I have noted that in our own political discourse in this country, I have noticed that both parties are speaking now in apocalyptic terms. In other words, if this side wins, the world is over. If that side wins, the world will come to an end. And I've read this book from Genesis to Maps, and I have yet to find that the apocalypse is in the hands of a politician. It's in the hands of Almighty God. And God forgive us that sometimes in our zeal to disinfect the church and the world, we sabotage the gospel. I'm thinking today of Kathleen Norris, who wrote a bestseller called Amazing Grace, a Vocabulary of Faith. It's one of the finest books. I've read it several times. I was reading it again this past week. 
In a particular chapter, she writes words, these words that are especially appropriate to our age. The polarization that characterizes so much of American life is risky business in a church congregation, but especially in a monastic community, in a monastery. Writes Norris, the person you're quick to label and dismiss as a racist, a homophobe, a queer, an anti-Semite, a misogynist, a narrow-minded conservative, or a bleeding heart liberal snowflake is also a person that you are committed to live, work, pray, and dine with for the rest of your life. Anyone who knows a monastery well knows that it is no exaggeration to say that you will find Al Franken and Rush Limbaugh living next door to each other. Mother Angelica and Mary Gordon, Barney Frank and Jesse Helms, not only living together in close quarters, but working, eating, praying, and enduring each other every day, often for 50 years or more. It isn't easy, but Christian monks have existed this way for close to 1,800 years, almost as long as the church itself writes Norris, disciples believe that Christ himself is behind the mystery of whatever unity we maintain. And we find in this our hope. She closes with this story. A Trappist abbot recently told me about a psychologist who had conducted a week-long retreat for his community, his monastery, during which the monks of all ages went to the therapist, the psychologist, to talk about their lives. And after the week was over, the psychologist came to the abbot and said, Father, I thought the age of miracles was past. How in the world can these people stand to live together for one day? let alone for years. And the old abbot scratched his head and said, I don't know. I've never been able to figure it out and I'm afraid to ask. If you feel like you're in the weeds this morning, would you mind if I gave you a little pastoral advice? Please please understand, this is not from me. I, I got this from my rabbi. When you're in the weeds, the first thing you need to do is lay down your weed eater. Because our call is not first of all to weed the patch. It's to bear fruit that befits repentance not to uproot others or remove myself from the field, though if I do, I may unwittingly purify the field. (laughs) No, our call is to stay grounded and surrounded by others, some of whom may seem noxious, maybe even a little obnoxious, a little offensive, and somewhat annoying, 
and some of whom may be absolutely delightful and productive and helpful. Our call is to stay in the weeds and to bear fruit and leave the rest to God for the good of the harvest and for the sake of the gospel to the glory of God. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.